I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Luke. Our Scripture meditation this evening from the Gospel of Luke, chapter chapter 7, and our meditation will be verses 36 through 50, Luke 7 verses 36 through 50, but I want to begin our reading at verse 33 this evening of Luke chapter 7, and then afterwards we'll turn to Lord's Day 51 in our Heidelberg Catechism which can be found in the forms and prayers in the pew in front of you. But first, we'll give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 33. The Word of God reads this evening, Luke 7, verse 33. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him a glutton, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. In our Scripture meditation, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to them, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. And then we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechisms to Lord's Day 51, the second last Lord's Day. Lord's Day 51, which can be found on page 256 on the Forms and Prayers. Page 256. The instructor asks, what does the fifth petition mean to which we respond together? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors' means. Because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of Your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. 
my most dear friends, if you were to get a phone call tomorrow morning from the bank saying, sir or ma'am, your mortgage has been entirely paid off by an anonymous donor, what should your response be when a homeless person asks you for a dollar on the street? You students, if your dad said to you, you know that $100,000 bill you have? I've decided to completely cover it for you. What do you say when he asks you to mow the lawn? Or to shovel the snow? You see, if we were to be blessed in such a way, it would be wrong for us to refuse a small token in return, right? To those whom have been, something has been freely given, we should also freely give. To those to whom something has been freely given, we should also freely give. This is what Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount when He teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That because God does not hold your sins or my sins against you or me, we should not hold others' sins against them. You see, every single one of us in this room has been sinned against at one time or another. Every single one of us will have to go through some trauma in this life. We will all have family trials. There will all be, always be an offense. The question is, how will you respond? John Calvin notes these words from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, by these words the Lord intended partly to comfort the weakness of our faith. What does Calvin mean? He's saying that God doesn't just tell you to forgive. He actually illustrates how you should forgive. God illustrates how we forgive. He doesn't just say, go and forgive and let it slide off your back. But Jesus shows us what it takes to forgive. He shows us what it takes to forgive at the cross. He demonstrates. He leads the way. Even though God knows that forgiveness is one of the hardest things He asks us to do. God knows the gut-wrenching feeling. God knows the pain of offense. How sometimes it, tests, it takes everything in you to say to someone, I forgive you. But when Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, He is saying we must call to mind the compassion that God has shown you and me. That when someone offends us, we must remember that God has said to us, sinners though we are, I forgive you. I do not hold it against you. And your sin will not keep me from loving you. That is what God has said to us. That is what God says 
We'll see to a great sinner in our Scripture passage this evening, and it is what we are called to say to those who offend us, even in this Christian life. I want to show you this in three points, three movements this evening. I want to look at first, the Pharisee embarrassed. Second, a great sinner forgiven. And then third, that those forgiven must also forgive. Notice first, the Pharisee embarrassed. I want you to notice that there's a scandal in this story. There's a big scandal in that day. The kind of thing people would have scoffed at behind closed doors. So you see a holy man, we read in verse 36, was in the presence of a great sinner. In fact, this was the greatest kind of sinner. This was the worst type of sinner. But Jesus, we read in verse 34, is a friend of sinners. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. And He is on a mission in the Gospel of Luke. A mission to to seek. And a mission to save the lost. And He's not come just for little sinners. People who are kind of sinful. He's come for great sinners. He's come for the worst type of sinners. But I want you to notice that the great sinner, the worst sinner in the story is not the sinful woman who will be introduced in verse 37. It's Simon the Pharisee. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. This is who the story is focused upon. And beloved, allow me to remind you this evening why Simon is a greater, fa- or a greater sinner, I should say. Because the only person who is unredeemable, the only sin that Jesus says is too far, so to speak, is the person who says, I am not a sinner. And the person who says, I do not need redemption. That is the worst sin that someone can commit. To think that God is pleased with you the way that you are. Paul himself was a sinner like this, and he called himself the chief of sinners. See, self-righteousness is the worst sin Because it treats the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross with contempt. As if His sacrifice was unnecessary and unguided. But Jesus comes to Simon's house because He is a friend of sinners. This shows us the missionary heart of Jesus, doesn't it? Even though Simon was likely trying to dig up some dirt upon Jesus, since in Luke chapter 5, it tells us that the Pharisees were opposed to him in his ministry. He was calling them out for their self righteousness, yet he comes. He comes to evangelize Simon. He comes to preach the gospel to the Pharisees. He comes to show them that there is forgiveness of sins in His blood, as the catechism says. And He does this with a second character we read in verse 37. The second character who I want to call the humble servant. Luke says, beginning in verse 37, Behold, 
That's not just a filler word. That's an important word. It's a marker word. Something new is coming into the story. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner slips into this narrative. Now in our day, if you and I were having a dinner party and a stranger walked in, it would be an odd thing. But in this ancient setting, you have to remember before the days of Instagram and Twitter and newspapers and magazines, rabbis and teachers were what you might call the movers and the shakers of their day. That if you wanted to know about the new ideas, you wanted to know about the goings-on of the world, you would go to them. And so, what's likely happening here is that Simon invites Jesus into his home. There's a long table set out, and there are people all gathered around, coming in and coming out. It's not shocking that she arrives, or someone arrives. What's shocking is that this woman arrives. Luke describes her as a woman of the city, which likely means that she was a Gentile. And she was a sinner. A known sinner. Everybody knew her. Everybody knew what her sin was. Which leads us to think that she was likely a prostitute. Now there's no, uh, there is nothing in the Bible that leads me to believe that this is Mary Magdalene, as some people suggest. But it seems likely that she was a prostitute for these reasons. First, she was a known sinner. But secondly, she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment. See, perfumes were a, a tool of prostitutes in that day. See, what they would do is they would wear a necklace or a, a leather strap and they would women would often put a little vial of perfume on that necklace. And what it was, was it actually was a source of a sense of deodorant. In the days before you had the lady speed stick, you would wear that to keep the smells down. And this was a common tool for prostitutes at that time. But the fact that it's an alabaster flask, which would have been a rich An expensive vial of perfume also tells us that she was likely good at her job. A known sinner. But here's the incredible part. She comes in with that flask to anoint Jesus. Remember, boys and girls, what Messiah means. What Christ means. Anointed. That somehow, some way, this sinner heard the preaching of Jesus or of His disciples. She heard of His Gospel grace. She heard of His love and His mission to go to the cross. And how by His blood He could wipe away all of the sins that she had committed. That she would be as white as snow in Jesus. And so she comes as a convert from His preaching. And she is going to come to Jesus and she's going to crack open that vial and she has come to anoint Him as her Messiah. Her Savior. Her prophet, priest, and king. It's an offering. 
Now, important to this story is also how Jesus would have sat around this table. He is not sitting on a chair like we would at a dinner party, but it says, Luke tells us twice, verses 36 and verse 37, that he is reclining at tables. You see, in the ancient world, as I mentioned, they would have had a long table, but it would have been quite low to the ground, and the host would put out cushions or couches around the table, and they would recline. They would prop maybe their chin on top of their hand, and they would converse in a relaxed fashion. But there's also a practical reason for it. Because in that day, men and women wore sandals. And they had to walk on dusty, muddy roads. And so the practical reason for wearing, or excuse me, sitting as they were, is they would keep their feet as far away from the table as they could. In fact, Luke, verse 38, makes a special point to say that Jesus' feet were behind Him. So somehow Jesus is lounging, his head towards the table and his guest, but his feet are behind his head. And so this woman, you have to imagine, is working the crowd. She's bumping into people, trying to get to Jesus. And so finally, she gets to where the Lord Jesus is reclining at table and she's standing there with that vial of perfume, ready to anoint Him. She stands behind the Lord, the One who had forgiven all of her sins, even the sin of prostitution, perhaps. She's overwhelmed. And she begins to think of all of her sin and how Jesus wiped all those sins away. And this is really quite amazing. As she stands over the feet of Jesus, she begins to weep. She's overwhelmed. She is flooded with tears. In fact, the word for weeping, she begins to weep tears, is in Greek is rain. She began to rain down tears upon the feet of Jesus. And she looks down and she sees where she's weeping that the feet of Jesus are actually dirty. And she takes the most humble position, the position of a servant. And she gets on her knees. And with her tears, she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus and dry them with her hair. Now we'll consider her actions in just a moment because they are very important. But for now, look at Simon's reaction in verse 39. Simon does not say, wow, what a beautiful picture of Jesus' grace. He does not say that God has come for the great sinners, the worst of sinners. Simon is scandalized by Jesus and this woman's actions. He said to himself, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, would he not have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner? He is embarrassed. You could even say he's disgusted. Disgusted by her sin. Disgusted by what Jesus is letting her do. And see, beloved, this is the scandal of the Gospel. The scandal of grace. That Jesus did not come for the self-righteous. He came for sinners. And He didn't just come for sinners. 
He came for the biggest sinners. He came for the greatest sinners. He came for the worst offenders. Put another way, Jesus came to save sinful prostitutes who look to Him in faith, not self-religious people who trust themselves. When I was in seminary, somebody put the question to me this way, and it really rocked me. I still remember it. How low is God's grace willing to go? Is there a line where God says, that's just too far? It's too much. What about a robber? What about a thief? Look at verse 34. He is the friend of tax collectors, the thieves of that day, and sinners. A prostitute? What about someone with great sexual sin? Verse 50, he says that she is forgiven. She is saved. What about the demon-possessed? Are they too far gone? Look at chapter 8, verse 2. Mary Magdalene. Seven spirits cast out of her. What about a murderer? Is that too far gone? Think of the, think of the thief on the cross. The, the sin that he committed. Although we don't know if it's murder, but we think it be, to be likely. See, this is the scandal of God's grace. That He is willing to go all the way to the bottom. That there is no one too low. No one too far gone. For Jesus, He is the friend of of sinners. Are you scandalized by that grace this evening? Are you scandalized if God on that last day saves a murderer but rejects the self-righteous hypocrite who by all measures looks great? Are you scandalized by that? Are you scandalized if a prostitute is saved? But the person who went to church every day of their life but never trusted Jesus is rejected. How low is God's grace willing to go? Are we scandalized if He saves a terrorist? Are we scandalized if He saves a pedophile? and turns others away. How low is God's grace willing to go? God came to save sinners. Great sinners who love Him and trust in Him by faith. And if we have a problem that some people go to heaven even though they are bad. And others go to hell who look righteous. We have to remember that that is justification by works. If the good people have to go to heaven, that's by works. If the bad people have to go to hell, that is by works. And praise God that He saves great sinners. Because this is a room full of great sinners. 
I don't mean that in a negative way. I love you. You know I do. But look at Jesus' words in Lord's Day 51. Forgive us our debts. It's in the plural. Not just one sin. Not just a few sins. But we've committed many sins. We are great sinners this evening. Jesus' prayer presupposes that we are all great sinners. We are all in need of a great mercy. We cannot look down our nose at anyone. See, the Pharisee was scandalized, embarrassed by God's grace. When instead, he should have said, Hallelujah. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. See, I want to focus now on this woman, a great sinner forgiven. What I want to show you here is how someone receives the forgiveness of God. Maybe you were here this evening and you would say, I'm a debtor to God. I need His mercy, but how do I receive it? This woman is held up for us as an example of how to receive God's mercy. First, I want you to see, notice her deep humiliation she has for sins. See, Luke doesn't tell us her name, but we, as I said earlier, think that this woman was likely a prostitute due to the fact that she was a known sinner and perfumes were commonly associated with that trade. But notice when she comes to the feet of Jesus how she is cut to the heart. See, in the presence of the second person of the Trinity, she is overwhelmed, flooded with the reality of her sin and how great of a Savior she has. Luke says that she began to weep. Martin Luther calls this her heart water. This is pouring out of her heart. And she weeps so much that she wets the feet of Jesus. You see the emotion here. It's just pouring out of this woman. An emotional dam has broken. And allow me to add here that we should never be ashamed of shed tears for the Lord. We should always be willing to have a broken heart before God since He never despises it. And her humiliation before God, her deep sense of sin is so deep in her heart that she bows on her knees and takes the position of the servant. And she begins to wash the feet of Jesus, even wipes them with the hair of her head. Verse 39. See the humiliation here. In fact, in the, in the ancient world, Jewish women were even required when they went out in the streets and on the town to have their hair put up. Rabbis on that day even said that if a woman walked around with her hair down, that was cause for a divorce. You see what this woman is doing. There is a deep, selfless, shameless love for Jesus. And that's the second thing. We need to have a deep humiliation for sin but we also need to have a deep love for Jesus. See, forgiveness is not only deep humiliation, it is also deep love. What is so important to Jesus about this woman is her love. Verse 42 says, when they could not pay Him, He canceled the debt of both. Which one will love Him more? Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are forgiven, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. See, you can't just stop at a deep humiliation for sin. 
She didn't simply weep that she had a great that she was a great sinner. She weeped because she had a great savior. She weeps because her sins do not bar her from God. She weeps because she is forgiven. She weeps because there is a mediator between her and God. There is a deep love. Such as the opposite of Simon, who would like to get to heaven by his own merit. Not because of Christ's blood. He wants to be there by his own righteousness. But this woman knows, flawed as she is, that she will never make it to heaven. She is not worthy enough. And through the preaching of Jesus and her disciples, she heard that there was a new high priest. She heard that he would shed his own blood. She heard that he would open up a new way to God through the curtain of his body. And that even she could draw near with a full heart and assurance. She loves Jesus because even though everyone in that room thinks and regards her as a prostitute and a great sinner, sinner, she is actually a forgiven saint. She is as clean as anyone can be. She couldn't get any cleaner. Because of Christ's blood, says the catechism. This is what she said, do not impute to me a poor sinner any of the transgressions that I do or the evil that constantly clings to us. And isn't that the ground of forgiveness? That's all you must do is simply pray these words. Father, forgive for the sake of Christ and you are washed as white as snow. It's not about how great I am. It's not about how there are other people who are worse than me. It's about how great of a Savior we have. So Matthew Henry says, that, says it this way, we should regard her tears as tears of joy. When she wiped his feet with her hair, it was a show of complete devotion to the Lord. When his feet were clean, she began to kiss his feet. The word for kissing is actually the same word that the product, in the story of the prodigal son, when the father receives his son and it says he falls on his neck and kisses him. It's an embracing. It's a holding on to. It's a loving. She is clinging to Jesus. And then when she breaks open that vial and pours it on His feet, she is saying, He is my Savior. All my hope rests in Him. Brothers and sisters, this evening, this is the model of penitence. We must recognize that, yes, we are great sinners, but the Gospel message is that there is a great sinner or a great Savior which has been provided. As one preacher says, which I like to quote so often, we are more sinful than we ever believed, but more loved than we ever dare hope for. This ought to inform our prayers every day. The first time we confess and look to Jesus, we are declared pure and, pure and righteous past, present, and future. But the catechism makes note that we are still poor sinners. We still struggle with sin. Evil constantly clings to us. So when we pray, let us ask for mercy for the sins that we commit and let us trust in God's mercy. Every day. Every day we pray, forgive. Forgive us, Lord. But now we come to the hard part of forgiveness. 
The Lord's Prayer does not just stop with forgiveness freely given, but forgiveness is also to be given freely. Forgive us our debts, the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, and then forgive our debtors. The Catechism notes this, forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. In other words, those who have been forgiven, forgive. Now, I must admit that there is great confusion on this subject. There's a lot of counseling out there. And there is a lot of pop psychology that teaches us that forgiveness is this sort of unilateral, letting it roll off your back, every offense, as if we're to go through life like the Stoics. Nothing bothers me. I don't need to hold on to it. But it's not really fair to those who have gone through great trauma to suggest that you can just let it roll off your back. The Bible's more realistic than that. Trauma hurts. Sin hurts. So we have to have a more biblical view of forgiveness, which I want to suggest to you this evening, is as Thomas Watson put it, biblical forgiveness is when we strive against all thoughts of revenge and then we wish our offenders well. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation and show ourselves at all occasions to relieve them. Biblical forgiveness, allow me to say that again, is when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. We wish our offenders well. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation and show ourselves at all occasions to relieve them. You see how different that is from what's being suggested today. See, let's begin with, in this third point, what forgiveness is not before we look at what forgiveness is. See, forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. Biblical forgiveness does not endorse the idea that once you are forgiven, there are no consequences for the offense. The Bible actually says that God disciplines the one whom He loves. The one who's been forgiven. God disciplines. And I'll give you an example. A father may forgive his son for coming home late and still ground him. You can have no thoughts of revenge. You can wish your son well. You can pray for him and be reconciled with him and do whatever you can to relieve them and still say, you need to be punished and deal with the consequences. That's the first thing. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. Second, forgiveness does not eliminate authority structures. What this means is is that you can be forgiven of your sins and still be accountable to government. Still be accountable to your parents. See, the textbook example of this is the thief on the cross. He repented of his sins. Jesus guaranteed him, today you will be with me in paradise. And he still died. He was not taken off that cross. You see, in a similar vein, when a sinner goes on sinning in the church without repentance, the church, even though this is the place of forgiveness, we must discipline. Now there's a third aspect of forgiveness. See, forgiveness is not the absence of consequence. It does not eliminate authority. 
And forgiveness does not require us to be unthinking. Forgiveness does not require us to be unquestioning. It does not require us to be undiscerning. You know, the Bible never says forgive and forget. Yet I hear it touted like it was written in the Word. The Bible never says forgive and forget. Instead, it's more like forgive and take steps, says Kevin DeYoung. That as if you, it's almost like if you forgive, you have to all of a sudden be okay with potentially dangerous situations. See, the Bible never commends being naive. There is no virtue in letting people harm you in the name of forgiveness. Instead, we are to remove all thoughts of revenge. We are to wish our offenders well. We are to pray for them and seek reconciliation and show ourselves at all occasions willing to relieve them. Instead, that's what the Bible teaches. And so when somebody truly seeks forgiveness for a wrong that they have done, that's what we should do. Let go of your revenge. Wish them well. Pray for them. And seek reconciliation. Your sinus, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, says forgiveness is threefold. So we've looked at what forgiveness is not. Let's look at what forgiveness is. He says that we need to first... This needs to be present in all forgiveness. We need to let go of revenge. It's what we saw this morning in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Christians must never seek their own revenge. If it is wise to do so, he says, this is not required, but if it is wise to do so, you can forgive someone of punishment. You can say, You need to be punished, but I am choosing that the right thing to do is to relieve you of that punishment. But your sinus says that's up to wisdom. It's not required. And then third, he writes, forgiveness can be the forgiveness of judgment. But he again says this is up to wisdom. What he is saying is that when we forgive someone, it may not always be wise to immediately regard them as rehabilitated. It takes time and discernment and wisdom to say, not only do I not hold it against you, but you are completely restored. So in all instances, we must forsake our own revenge and use wisdom and discernment to see if we need to relieve them of punishment or judgment. And you see, Simon has this whole thing mixed up. He thinks that the sinful woman should not be forgiven. He's, in a sense, holding the sins of the sinful woman against her. And so Jesus tells them a parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And remember here that a denarii was one day's wage, so it's 500 days' wages compared to 50 days' wages. And so Jesus asked, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? I mean, could you imagine this? You miss your car payment. The loan officer calls you up. Hey, you missed your payment, but don't worry about it. It's taken care of. That doesn't happen. Or you miss your mortgage. The bank calls and says, hey, we've taken care of it. Don't worry about your mortgage anymore. It doesn't happen. But in Christ, it does. In fact, the word 
here for canceled in Greek is karazimoma, excuse me, karazomia, which is, comes from the word grace. That's what makes the story so profound. It's about grace. You see, brothers and sisters, a debt doesn't just go away. When someone forgives the debt, that means that they have to pay it for themselves. If a friend gives you $500 and says, don't worry about paying me back, that means your friend took it on themselves to give it to you. And here is the point. Jesus took on this woman's debt. It didn't just disappear. The debt was transferred to him. And so Simon had no reason to hold her sins against her. Instead, what was clear is that Simon's own heart had not been touched by grace. He didn't honor Jesus. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. He had failed in forgiveness. You see that the the connection between the honor he gave to Jesus and the honor he gave to her. And because he refused Jesus' gospel, he refused to not hold this woman's sins against her. In conclusion, Jesus says in verse 48 to this woman, your sins are forgiven. In Greek, it's in the perfect tense which means it's a past action with ongoing results. She had already been forgiven. Some other day, some other time, that guilt was washed away. And so Jesus proclaims in a way a benediction over her life. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it is with us, beloved. We who have trusted in the free grace of God, though we are great sinners, we have a great Savior. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so our lives are not to be marked by bitterness. Our lives are not to be marked by grudges or retribution. We must freely give, we have been freely given grace. Not so that we can hold on to it, but so that we can freely give it to others. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks this evening for the great grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as we go into this week, we know that there will be sins against us. We know that even coming into this week, Lord, we have been offended. But may we not be like Simon who hold the sins of others against them, not willing to allow our hearts to be touched by Your grace. But may we be people who remember the cross. How, Lord, You came to us in a heart full of grace. And Lord, may we extend that to them as well. Father, bless us in the rest of this hour as we worship you. Stir us up to this good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.